You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 191, The Battle of Alligator Bridge. Now, it's been a while since we checked in on the war in Florida. I think the last time was episode 138, when I talked about the Battle of Thomas Creek and the duel between Button Gwinnett and Lachlan McIntosh, which took place in May 1777. Over the next year, neither side prioritized the Southern Theater. All of the action was taking place further north in the Saratoga Campaign and the Philadelphia Campaign. The Continental Commander in the South from April of 1777 until September of 1778 was General Robert Howe, who, I've said before, is no relation to British General William Howe or Admiral Richard Howe. Robert Howe came from a family that had lived in South Carolina for several generations. Howe's great-grandfather was South Carolina Governor James Moore. Other ancestors had served in South Carolina government as well. Howe's father moved to North Carolina with his wife and was rather prosperous. Robert was born in 1732 on the family plantation at Cape Fear, one of seven children. Young Robert went to London for his education. He returned and married the daughter of another wealthy planter. Robert's position in a wealthy and powerful family allowed him to assume leadership positions from a young age. In his early 20s, Howe became a captain in the local militia. A few years later, he took a seat as a Justice of the Peace and also served in the Colonial Assembly. By the 1770s, Colonel Howe was in his 40s, commanded a regiment of militia, and owned several large plantations of his own. Howe also got used to the good life. He had to sell or mortgage several of his plantations that he had inherited in order to stay out of debt. He and his wife separated in 1772, a highly unusual happening. He suffered from rumors of repeated infidelity and that he starved his family in order to keep up appearances. Bob Howe, as he was known, earned a reputation as a man of charm and sophistication. He enjoyed dancing and was the life of any party. In the Colonial Assembly, he focused on finances and matters involving the colonial militia. I may recall from episode 35 that North Carolina had a reputation for its sheriffs collecting taxes and fees in the backcountry and in doing so ripping off the locals. Howe worked to enact legislation that would criminalize these fraudulent collections. He served for many years as a capable and active legislator. When William Tryon became royal governor, he and Howe became friends and political allies. Governor Tryon also appointed Howe to be commandant of Fort Johnston, which was the primary defense at Cape Fear. 
During the Regulator Movement, which led to the Battle of Alamance, Howe supported the governor in suppressing the rebellion. Howe commanded the Artillery Corps and served as quartermaster during the government campaign to crush the Regulator Rebellion. After Tryon's departure, Howe did not really get along so well with the new governor, Josiah Martin. The new governor thought that Howe's position as commander of Fort Johnston and baron of the Court of Exchequer was a conflict of interest. So he removed Howe from his position on the Court of Exchequer. A short time later, Captain John Collette of the British regulars assumed command of Fort Johnston, thus depriving Howe of his other major royal appointment. Later, Howe and Governor Martin butted heads over legislation designed to make it more difficult to seize the property of non-residents for debt. The governor had instructions from London to prevent seizures that might adversely impact wealthy and powerful men living in England who owned property in the colony. Over the next couple of years, Howe became a leading opponent of the royal governor of North Carolina. He began corresponding with other leaders in the Patriot Movement and other colonies. Following the closure of Boston Harbor in 1774 in retaliation for the Tea Party, Howe served on a committee to collect food for the residents of Boston. When Governor Martin prorogued the Assembly to prevent it from sending delegates to the First Continental Congress, Howe served on the extra-legal committee that selected delegates anyway. He took a leading role in the Provincial Congress, also in defiance of the royal governor. In 1775, Howe was commanding and training local militia, again in defiance of governor's orders. Later that year, Governor Martin removed or spiked the cannons at Fort Johnston to prevent them from falling into rebel hands, and then fled the colony. See episode 69. As George Washington took command of the new Continental Army near Boston, Robert Howe and James Moore took command of the two North Carolina regiments to protect North Carolina from any attack by British regulars. Howe's regiment went to Virginia, where it participated in the battles of Great Bridge and Norfolk, which I discussed in episode 77. In March of 1776, the Continental Congress commissioned North Carolina's military leaders. Both James Moore and Robert Howe as brigadier generals in the Continental Army. Howe also served as military advisor to the North Carolina Provincial Congress. A few months later, when the British under General Henry Clinton landed at Cape Fear, General Howe, by this time serving under Major General Charles Lee, moved to oppose the landing. Because the North Carolina Loyalists had been defeated at Moores Creek Bridge, something again I discussed in episode 82, the British moved on after a few minor coastal attacks. The fight went down to South Carolina, where Patriots prevented the British from capturing Fort Sullivan in Charleston Harbor. After the victory at Charleston, General Lee went north in late 1776 to assist with the defense of New York. At that point, General James Moore took command of the Southern Department. When Moore got sick and died rather suddenly in the spring of 1777, Robert Howe finally took command of the Southern Department, which included everything from Virginia to Florida. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes, the Southern Command was always a mess, even from the beginning when Charles Lee tried to organize it. 
politicians, particularly in South Carolina and Georgia, tried to run the military directly. Many of the state armies did not put themselves under the command of the Continental Army. Governors and legislators wanted to appoint key officers. Hey, they figured if they paid for the soldiers, that gave them the authority to set policy and direct military offensives. They expected the Continental Army to back them up, while the state leaders set military strategy. None of the states really wanted to spend enough money to raise large numbers of soldiers to fight in their proposed campaigns. They were constantly demanding that other states send more soldiers to assist them. Even when everyone agreed on a campaign, the state officials still refused to put their state soldiers under the command of continental leadership. The Continental Congress declared that continental officers could order militia in the field, which was necessary to a unified command. State officials, however, simply ignored those dictates and permitted the militia to ignore continental orders. That divided command led to the debacle of Thomas Creek and contributed to the fatal duel between Continental General Lachlan McIntosh and Georgia President Button Gwinnett that I discussed in episode 138. Those lessons apparently had not changed behavior, and the divisions remained a problem well into 1778. In addition to fighting with politicians, Howe had to fight for control with his own generals. Continental General Christopher Gadsden took the position that, as a South Carolinian, he should command all the troops in South Carolina, despite the fact that General Howe was his senior, and that he had been given command of the region. General Gadsden got the South Carolina legislature to debate the question. In the end, the legislature decided that, no, you're a Continental officer, and you really need to take orders from a more senior Continental officer. General Gadsden then pitched a fit, threw his epaulette at General Howe, and resigned his commission. Gadsden then got elected to a seat in the state legislature, and then as lieutenant governor of the state, where he remained an implacable foe of General Howe. About the same time Gadsden resigned, Congress promoted Howe to Major General in October 1777, perhaps in an attempt to confirm his overall command. Now, despite these ongoing conflicts with state officials, General Howe also needed to worry about the enemy in Florida. Following the loss at Thomas Creek in the spring of 1777, Continental and state militia troops pulled back into Georgia and assumed mostly defensive positions. Things were relatively quiet for the rest of the year, other than minor raids. In January 1778, the Georgia legislature began planning another invasion of Florida. Officials demanded that General Howe provide the Continental forces to assist the militia with the planned invasion. Howe pointed out that the timing of the invasion in the spring was a bad one because the militia would need to do their planting at that time. The legislature took offense at Howe's comments and suggested to the Continental Congress that it reprimand the general for insubordination. Congress, of course, ignored the suggestion because, among other reasons, a Continental general was not subordinate to a state legislature. As the squabbling continued, a troop of Florida loyalists under Colonel Thomas Burntfoot Brown rode 50 miles into Georgia and captured Fort Howe, about 60 miles south of Savannah. 
this was only one of multiple raids that the Loyalists from Florida had launched that spring. A month later, in April, General Howe recaptured the fort and forced the Loyalists to retreat. Around the same time, he received word that about 500 Loyalists from the backcountry had organized and were riding to Florida to join with a larger force there. Howe deployed infantry to intercept them, but the Loyalists on horseback easily outpaced the infantry and made it to Florida. During this deployment, the Continentals did manage to capture the British brig Hitchinbrook, which was full of supplies, as well as the 14-gun Rebecca, which was Florida's main naval support at the time. They also sank several smaller ships. These new offensives only increased the demands of the Georgia legislature to take the fight to Florida. At the recaptured Fort Howe, General Howe arrived with about 400 Continentals who had been stationed in Georgia. He called up more Continentals to be deployed from South Carolina and for any militia volunteers. By the end of May, he had a combined force of about 1,300 soldiers. He began marching south in early June. Once again, though, Howe did not have a unified command. Commodore Oliver Bowen of the Georgia Navy commanded a small fleet along the coast. Newly elected Georgia Governor John Houston remained in command of the Georgia militia. Colonel Pinckney insisted on an independent command of the South Carolina militia. A militia of problems aside, Howe also had trouble commanding his own Continentals. Four men attempted to desert in mid-May. Two of the deserters were Frenchmen who had joined the Continental Army. As punishment, Howe ordered the two men to run a gauntlet where other soldiers beat them. A French officer protested at the disgrace and said his men would rather be hanged or shot. The men being punished, however, disagreed and decided to run the gauntlet. A few days later, a sergeant and a private also deserted. The sergeant attempted to get a larger group of men to leave with them. The two men were captured and shot. A day later, a squad of eight more deserters were executed. These men had been former British regulars who were captured at Saratoga. They had joined the Continental Army, but had attempted to rejoin the British as soon as they got the chance. Despite these problems, the American offensive began, and there really was no real coordination. Governor Houston wanted to march his militia directly along the coast to St. Augustine, forcing a confrontation with the British and Loyalist forces. General Howe wanted to capture Fort Tonin, which sat miles inland on the St. Mary's River. Since they could not agree, Howe took his Continentals to Fort Tonin, while Houston waited with the militia near the coast. Howe also requested 300 slaves to help cut a road through the wilderness. The legislature supplied 56. Howe also lost a substantial food supply when Governor Houston ordered that 200 barrels of rice for the Continentals be detained and used them to feed his militia instead. On another occasion, the state seized 12 horses designated to carry supplies to the Continentals so that, again, they could be used for the needs of the militia. Despite these and many other little incidents of deprivation, the Continental Army advanced. As the Continentals approached Fort Tonin, the small garrison burned the fort and retreated into the swamps. 
After taking the ruins of Fort Tonin, at least some of the Georgia militia also joined Howe at the fort. Loyalist Colonel Brown had his cavalry in the area. Howe dispatched a force of cavalry under the command of Militia General James Screven to locate and engage Brown's loyalists. Screven took about 100 mounted soldiers and managed to get intelligence on the enemy's position, either from a deserter or a captured prisoner. With that, the Americans ambushed the Loyalists and sent them into retreat. The Loyalists moved southeast to a small bridge over Alligator Creek. There were several companies of regulars under the command of Major James Marcus Prevost, also known as Mark Prevost. He was the younger brother of General Augustine Prevost, overall commander of regulars in Florida. Major Prevost set up defenses at Alligator Bridge. Combined with the Loyalist militia, he had about 200 men. Brown's Loyalists rode into camp, followed closely behind by Screven's militia. Since neither group wore uniforms, the British defenders were not sure where the escaping Loyalists ended and the pursuing Georgia militia began. After a few moments of confusion, a firefight broke out as the two sides formed lines of battle. As the two sides fired on each other, Brown's loyalists reformed behind the British line and moved around the lines in an attempt to hit the Americans from the rear and trap them. They managed to wound General Screven, who ordered a retreat and escaped with most of his men. The Americans later reported nine killed, while the British reported five killed. The numbers of wounded are unknown, and there were no prisoners, as was common with skirmishes between loyalist and patriot militia. The following day, Major Prevost gathered his militia and regulars and moved forward to find the enemy. After making contact with a small group, though, the British thought better of it, and they began to retreat again, felling trees across the roads to prevent any advance by the enemy. Now, a few days after this skirmish at Alligator Bridge, the rest of the Georgia militia joined the Continentals at Fort Tonin. Disease and desertion, however, had thinned the ranks of both groups. On top of that, they were running out of food. The Georgia legislature was unwilling or unable to send more supplies. In addition, the militia was still unwilling to cooperate in any way with the Continentals. On one occasion, Governor Houston sent a squad of militia into the Continental camp with orders to arrest a Continental officer. On another occasion, the militia tried to seize a boat full of Continental wounded being sent home for care. Even with this bickering, Houston encouraged Howe to go on the attack again, telling him that, yeah, sure, he'd back up his Continentals with the militia. Howe said he could only move if the governor could find some provisions for his army, and Houston replied that he did not have any to spare. On July 11th, Howe convened a council of war with his Continental officers. The officers agreed that they had met their goal of forcing the Loyalists and British to leave Georgia and that a further advance into Florida was ill-advised given the lack of supplies, the lack of cooperation of the militia, and the spread of disease among the troops. After the meeting of his war council, General Howe dispatched a messenger to Colonel Andrew Williamson of the South Carolina Militia and to Governor Houston, commanding the Georgia Militia, to meet at his camp and command tent to discuss their options. 
both men refused to enter the Continental camp and said that Howe should come to them. Finally, after some negotiation, Howe agreed to meet at a spot between the two camps. After the meeting, the officers withdrew for further discussions with their own officers. Without waiting for further discussions, Halston returned to his militia camp and sent an aide to request that Howe inform him of his plans. After waiting another day to try to get Halston to talk to him, Howe gave up. On July 14th, he ordered a general withdrawal of the Continental Army northward to Savannah. While General Howe was deployed in southern Georgia, fighting for ground with the Loyalists and fighting for supplies with the militia, a third front opened up against him. In June, Lieutenant Governor Gadsden received a copy of a letter that Howe had sent to Congress nearly a year earlier when Gadsden was insisting that he command all the Continental troops in South Carolina. Gadsden was outraged that Howe had written a letter critical of him and demanded that South Carolina delegates in the Continental Congress judge the propriety of this letter. Gadsden also made an appeal to General Charles Lee. Nobody seemed to want to act on Gadsden's demands because, well, generals are allowed to write letters to Congress which are critical of other officers, particularly subordinates who are refusing to follow orders. Unable to get satisfaction that way, Gadsden began circulating rebuttals, claiming that Howe was a man of, quote, downright low cunning, jockeying, and sharping, who had said these terrible things in order to, quote, wedge himself into command, all based on his personal ambition. When Howe returned from the field in late July, he received word of Gadsden's comments and demanded a response from Gadsden. Howe was willing to resolve the issue by assuring Gadsden that it had not been his intent to reflect upon or injure Gadsden by his letters, and that anything said that Gadsden was taking issue with might have been from a lack of understanding rather than a lack of integrity. In light of that, he called on Gadsden to apologize for the attacks on Howe's integrity. Gadsden, however, refused to budge. With his honor in question, Howe challenged Gadsden to a duel. The two men agreed to pistols on August 30th under the Liberty Tree in Charleston. Because such a large crowd showed up to watch the duel, they moved the location to a more private venue at the last minute. There, the two men took eight short paces, turned, and pointed their pistols at each other. Then, both just stood there, not firing. Finally, Hal demanded that Gadsden take the first shot. Gadsden insisted that Howe fire first. Finally, Howe took his shot, which reportedly grazed Gadsden's ear. Gadsden then pointed his gun away from Howe and wasted his shot. Gadsden's second commented that by firing away, he could not have offered a finer apology and that Howe had also acted honorably. Gadsden then said he did not apologize for questioning Howe's right to command, but only for his abusive language. That satisfied Howe. The two men shook hands and parted ways. They would remain enemies, but would not find another need to meet on the field of honor. For most of the rest of the year, the border fighting between Georgia and Florida returned to a period of relative quiet. That would change near the end of the year 
when the British attacked Savannah. That, of course, will have to be the topic of a future episode. Next week, though, we return to upstate Pennsylvania for the Wyoming Valley Massacre. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. I also want to thank Brian Hansen, who joined the revolution as Privy Counselor, and to Curtis Johnson, Robert Martin, Tom Folson, Rex Radloff, and Maurice Walton, who became standard bearers last month. All of you will be getting your first monthly magnet this month, along with my gratitude for your support of this podcast. I'm also grateful for the one-time contributions via PayPal from Paul Kallenberger, David Sarrow, and Scott O'Brien, as well as John Jagiello, who chipped in via Venmo. Your one-time gifts are a great help to me. So this week, we caught up on events between Patriot Georgia and Loyalist Florida, in the continuing skirmishes by both sides. Now, Georgia was not a heavily populated state at this time, but it dominated Florida by comparison. It was probably only the inability of state leaders and continental officers to work well with each other and for the state to give full financial support to the war effort that prevented the Patriots from taking Florida during this period. The fact that this week included yet another duel between a Continental officer and a state politician underscores just how deep that division had become. In some ways, this actually makes me respect George Washington even more. In the North, where Washington was the commander and present, he always seemed to be able to prevent this sort of division from occurring between the elected leaders and the military officers. Washington's political skills were often very subtle and behind the scenes, so we tend to take them for granted. But if the schism among northern leaders and soldiers had reached the heights that they did in the southern command, the war might have had a very different outcome. Now, there are, of course, many people responsible for the fact that that did not happen. However, I give Washington a fair amount of the credit for setting the tone and making sure everyone stuck to it. As we will see in a future episode, British leaders finally removed the danger of losing Florida by sending large numbers of military reinforcements to Florida in late 1778. They sent not only enough soldiers to secure Florida, but to capture Georgia as well. 
They did so, of course, by reducing the army under General Clinton in New York. But at this point, in mid-1778, the British had almost no regulars. Most of their defenses were based on loyalists who had fled from Georgia to Florida. The fighting between the loyalists and patriots tended to be more brutal everywhere than it was against regulars, and the Georgia-Florida contest was no exception to this. I mentioned in earlier episodes that the Loyalist leader Thomas Burntfoot Brown got his nickname because Patriots had literally burned his feet in an attempt to force him to take an oath of loyalty to the Patriot cause. Both sides regularly burned or stole property from the other side. Sometimes one side would even escalate the matter by executing the enemy. In one skirmish, I'm not sure which one, sometime in 1778, the Patriots under General Screven had killed a Loyalist officer who I've only seen referred to as Captain Moore. I don't know the exact circumstances of Moore's death, but the Loyalists claimed that he was murdered. In November, during another skirmish, Screven was shot and fell off of his horse. Several Loyalist soldiers under Colonel Brown rushed the general told him that this was payback for the murder of Captain Moore, and unloaded their pistols into the wounded general, thus killing him. Such was the level of back-and-forth hatred between locals on both sides. The local leader of the Loyalists in this region, throughout all these battles, was Colonel Thomas Burntfoot Brown. He was an effective leader, and not afraid to get brutal with the hated enemy who had cost him almost everything. He had hanged prisoners, who he held responsible for his own brutal treatment. He was also an effective and motivating leader for the Loyalists, often operating an effective guerrilla war with almost no resources. If you want to read more about Brown, this week's book recommendation is The King's Ranger, Thomas Brown and the American Revolution on the Southern Frontier, by Edward J. Cashin. The book is a really good and much closer look at what we know about this Loyalist officer and the broader war in which he fought. Although I've mentioned Brown in several earlier episodes, I've been reluctant to recommend this book pretty much because it's just pretty hard to find. It was published in 1991 and is long out of print, but if you can get a copy, it's worth the read. It's not too long, about 300 pages, and, as I said, covers the Georgia-Florida conflict from the Loyalist perspective. The author, Dr. Cashin, was a history professor at Augusta State University. He probably wrote a dozen books or so on Georgia in the colonial or Revolutionary War era. Sadly, he passed away in 2008. As I said, this book is a pretty good read and one that adds a new dimension to the Southern conflict. So, if you want to read more, and you can find it, check out The King's Ranger. My online recommendation this week is another unpublished PhD thesis, this one by Roger Smith, entitled The Fourteenth Colony and the American Revolution in the South. As you would expect from a PhD thesis, it's extremely well-researched and a detailed look at the role of Florida in the Revolutionary War. Uh, the thesis was presented at the University of Florida in 2011 and is freely available online. Dr. Smith has gone on to write other works. I think he's written for the Journal of the American Revolution. 
He also often serves as a consultant on Revolutionary War documentaries and other shows. I think he consulted on the show Turn. He also runs a company called Colonial Research Associates, where you can buy some of his works, including a version of his PhD thesis about the war in Florida that he turned into a book. I've included links to both his thesis and his website for Colonial Research Associates on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.